now that cash flow is coming down and down and down, and the government's trying to prop the asset prices up more and more, is the better way for me to keep ahead of inflation going forward, focus more on asset price increase versus actual cash flow? Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, I got Jeremy Roll. Jeremy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I am fantastic. Thanks for joining me. A little bit about Jeremy. He started investing in real estate and businesses in 2002, and he left the corporate world in 2007 to become a full-time passive cash flow investor. He's currently an investor in more than 60 opportunities across more than $1 billion worth of real estate and business assets. As the founder and president of Roll Investment Group, Jeremy manages a group of over 1,500 investors who seek passive and managed cash flowing investments in real estate and businesses. He's also the co-founder of Four Investors by Investors, a nonprofit launched in 2007 with the goal of facilitating networking and learning amongst real estate investors with no sales pitch. Jeremy, with that said, give our listeners a bit more about your background, anything more they should know and what you're doing today. Sure. And thanks again for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I just want to apologize to anybody out there. I There's some construction going on next door. If you hear any noise, I just like putting the disclaimer out. I got to the, like, the other corner of the house as best as I can make it. So um, anyway, uh, so um, so I have been a, a passive cash flow investor since 2002, right after the dot-com crash. And I essentially focused on that in 2002 um, because of the lack of predictability of the stock market. I kind of got fed up after the dot-com crash in terms of the volatility of the stock market and the lack of predictability for the long term for my retirement account. And so I've been investing in passive cash flow, more like low risk, more predictable type of focus since 2002. And the cash flow actually got me out of the corporate world in 2007 after I rotated my money from stocks and bonds into cash flow, essentially. So I've been a full-time passive cash flow investor since 2007 which is now going on, I was June 2007. So I guess we're going on about 13 and a half years. And my goal is to really never have to go back to the corporate world. So I focus on what I call my cash flow snowball. And I just try to build it and grow it over time and over the years. And so I'm all about predictable cash flow. And that's what I focus on today. I invest in both real estate, all different asset classes in both commercial, multifamily, all different types, as well as um, residential as well. And a lot of non- uh, real estate stuff as well, including a handful of startups and, and a lot of different cash flowing business scenarios. So I'm big fan of diversification. I'm probably hyper or over diversified uh, to the point of I don't recommend most people doing it to that point um, just because of the work. Um, I focus full time, so I'm able to accomplish that. But um, and um, I'm very low risk. You know, I have a reputation being very low risk, and that, that's really what I tend to try to focus on as well. Uh, I know you asked what I'm doing today. Um, you know, we're, we're recording this in February 2021. We're still in the middle of pandemic. Um, I believe there's still some uncertainty left that makes me uncomfortable in terms of really jumping back in. So I am focused on um, just continuing to be on the sidelines. For the most part, I'm never fully on the sideline. There's always opportunities out there that make sense, but I'm just being extra cautious right now to see how the rest of the pandemic unfolds, how government intervention unfolds and, and what it looks like once it subsides and some other stuff as well. What, what were you doing before the 
pandemic hit, were you were you actively investing? Were you on the sidelines? I mean, things were things were looking. I don't know. Things were fairly frothy before the pandemic hit. You know, prices had had gone up. They were kind of all time highs through most of the asset classes and, and real estate, especially. Uh, were you actively investing? Were you kind of at a pause? Like, what were you looking at then? Great question. So um, I was mostly on the sidelines since the end of 2016, just to be clear. Mm -hmm. So that's when everything just got too expensive for my own comfort, with the exception of anything unique, unique pricing. So I've made a lot of investments since then. In fact, I've made multiple investments this year already, right? And it's only February. But, yeah. but compared to my normal volume, I was not just doing market rate deals. It had to be something unique about it. Um, and so I was pushing the sponsors I was invested in to sell. And I was involved in over 30 sales in the last three to four years alone. Um, and I was worried about end of cycle, kind of high pricing. And that's pretty much what I was focused on. It's funny because I don't know if you follow the uh, inverted yield curve with the stock market, but that is a very common predictor of when we may see an economic downturn. Yeah. And what's crazy is that the midpoint prediction of the inverted yield curve in a typical recession and a typical cycle um, was pointing to March 2020 as like the midpoint of when it may happen in terms of the, like the window that it would normally predict. And then, and then the, the recession ended up starting in February. So now I know it was pandemic cause and all this, but we were already in a slowing situation and stuff. So I was being very, very cautious in the past few years. Got it. Got it. What do you have to see? What do you have to see happen before you start investing again? Like, you know, obviously you're investing still, but not to, not to a high level right now, it sounds like. So in order for you to feel really comfortable and be fully off the sidelines, what do you have to see? Yeah. So for me to have like the true, what I would call all clear, right? Like, uh, and by the way, I love having the all clear after the end of a downturn or at the yeah. end of a, you know, an income, because that's the best time to invest. You got your wind at your sales, you know, probably things go upwards for a number of years, et cetera. So it's a fantastic time. What I'm waiting for is government intervention to subside or to be very much lower. So mm. for example, um, I have to see eviction moratoriums lifted. I have to see mortgage, uh, you know, deferrals stop, right, by, by law. Um, I've got to see what happens when those things actually unfold. We've got to see a much lower level of stimulus impacting the economy to see how the economy holds up on its own and what really happens, what people can really afford. So basically what I'm trying to say is I need to see a lot of this artificial stimulus that's been propping up the economy go away and see what happens when the economy walks on its own. And then from there, it, you know, real estate adjusts slowly, especially compared to the stock market. So from there, I've got to see what happens in the six to nine month period after this all stops. And then seeing like once the tide washes up, what do things really look like? And um, the fact of the matter is things can look perfectly fine, right? Because it's possible the stimulus bridge the entire recession pretty much fully. And it's possible there will be bumpy road ahead. And it's just not clear. And so because I'm so low risk, to me, what's really cool is that when at this timing right now, I think that we're not going to have very long to discover this. So meaning that my personal belief is that, and from what I've read, is that there's a good probability that they're going to pass this current 1.9 trillion stimulus in whatever amount it's going to be in whatever form it's going to be. They're talking about it passing by March, say. And, but then there is rumor that there'll probably be one more stimulus they're going to try and push through sometime in the summer or fall, right? I know you're shaking your head. I kind of feel the same way, but that's just what it is. That's, that's kind of the objective reality. Yeah. Right. And then I think that once that's done, I think it's going to be much harder for them to make a case, most likely for next year, for example. Right. 
So as investors, we probably only have to wait until the end of this year, beginning of next year to actually see what it looks like. Like it's hard to picture eviction moratoriums going into 2022, for example, yeah. right? So if they go in all the way to the end of this year, which is kind of easy to still picture, then we don't have much longer past that. So to me, like the risk reward is that I don't have to wait a very small amount of time, relatively speaking, to see what things are going to look like. So, you know, I'm very frustrated because the last cycle was a record long cycle and it kept me in a sidelines position for the most part for a very long time, longer than it should have been, you know, like compared to most cycles. And so I'm very frustrated and continuing to wait, but I'm also very patient because I'm just a really low risk guy. So that's where I stand. And in the meantime, I'm trying to find investments that I think can make sense in this environment today, where I'm not necessarily exposed to the risks of a potential adjustment in rents or a potential adjustment in cap rates and adjustment in asset value. So that's the tricky part. Yeah, that make, that makes sense. It's a, it's definitely a, a, a challenge. Uh, and I struggle with myself deciding, you know, you want to continue to grow the business. You want to continue to make sound, good investments. But at the same time, you don't want to do that to at the risk of your investors, at the risk of, of your own money, at the risk of putting your business in a poor position. So it's, it's definitely challenging to navigate through that. Um, but yeah, you, you, you have a different set of challenges than I do, right? Because you yeah. have employees and staff and everything else and lights you have to keep on and all this stuff. So you have a whole, you have like one set of considerations and investors, not the least of which, right? Investors, yeah. investors, money. I have cash flow. Um, you know, is this going to be a really bad choice? Am I going to make an investment to work less next year for myself, right? As a primary focus for myself. So yeah. it's, it's very different. Um, I'm trying to, trying to protect my capital. You're trying to figure out what the best move is for an investor in the next 12 months that's going to come along with you. So it's, it's similar, but different at the same time, you yeah. know? You know, so you started in 2002, uh, investing in real estate, investing in other businesses. So you were able to, I mean, you quit your job and the recession started not very long after. Yes. Uh, was, was there, uh, first of all, was there difficult times through that? What, are, what were the challenges that you faced during that time? And do you see any, like, is there any similarities you see? either that led up to that time that, that's kind of happening right now or just happened, or is there any like similarities that maybe people can like go, oh, that's a great advice or that's, that's a great insight? Yeah, well, really good question. And something I've been thinking about a lot lately, coincidentally over the past week. So I have an interesting response for you on that. But let me just start off by saying, when I left my job in June of 2007, uh, my wife, was already pregnant. We, she was literally deciding not to go. She was doing maternity leave and not going back to being a teacher and just doing full-time mom. So she was quitting her job. And I quit my job knowing that. <laughs> I really expected a recession in 2008. I really did. You did. Um, 100%. I, I was a person between 05 and 08 that was telling people there was going to be a ridiculous housing crash. And for years, everybody thought I was nuts. And it was like yeah. agony, especially because I was much younger. And it's even worse when you're younger. I'd be like these you know, dinner parties and people thought I was crazy. And yeah. it was really agonizing. Um, so, um, but I, I had about 2x coverage of cash flow versus cost of living and I was very diversified. So I wasn't, I wasn't, I, I was willing to take the risk for about two years of what the runaway I gave to myself. Uh, but I had a lot of what I would call predictable cash flow that was already set to come in. So it was all somewhat calculated, right? So we were, very, and I was also very lucky because a lot of my investments were in Canada at the time. That's where I started investing in O2. I was living in the US, but I'm from Montreal. I started there because I had a bigger network there. 
I'd only been in the US for two years. I had more people I knew I could trust and I understood the markets better at that point. And so I had less exposure to the US than most people. I didn't have any single family exposure. I actually had zero foreclosures I was involved in as a result of the last downturn. I've been in one foreclosure period and that was a very unique 1% story unrelated to the downturn, which is a really interesting story and was actually multifamily. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so I was, you know, in a bit of a good, I was in a good position in some ways and an odd position in other ways with the recession coming up and having left the corporate world. It all worked out, which is great. I'm a very low risk guy. So I had to have 2X coverage or I was not going to feel comfortable with that. Um, and now going to like, you know, thinking about cycles, here's what's really fascinating. In retrospect, these end of cycles and tops seem very obvious. So really good examples that we're talking about right now. Dot-com, these companies were going public, had negative earnings and had no path to becoming profitable, it seemed. And yet there was millions and hundreds of millions of dollars being poured at them, right? One after the other. Um, 2008, when your barber told you that they were going to buy a home and flip it, that was the top, yeah. right? Okay, because that happened to me, and I, I know it's an expression, but it's true. And that was kind of, in retrospect, it's kind of obvious, right? Everybody was flipping a home. That's yeah. the time. Okay. Yeah. Today, this is great. Like, think about this. It's kind of clear. When you have people taking stimulus money and buying crypto, right, that has no intrinsic value, and buying um, GameStop or, you know, and pushing it up, right? Doesn't it seem kind of obvious and Bitcoin, right? And Tesla, and by the way, Tesla, okay? And I, my last job was in the, I worked at Toyota headquarters, my last corporate job, okay? So I know cars. When Tesla, which is a, a non-profitable company for years, okay? And only makes a profit right now on paper because of tax credits they get still today is worth more than the combined value of most major automakers that have been in business for decades, okay? And then you have people buying Bitcoin, crypto, and GameStop craziness, and they're taking their stimulus checks and putting this into the market. In retrospect, this is going to be obvious. It was pretty obvious when Tesla was worth more than most of the major automakers combined, isn't making a fraction, even 3% of production of all those companies, and is not profitable like the rest of the companies, right? When people are bidding up uh, all these other crypto, not even necessarily Bitcoin, but all these other ones that are going to not be worth anything in the end of the day because they're tiny little unknown crypto, Bitcoin's a bit of a different story. When people are buying calls, like crazy with margin, doing all these crazy things with their stimulus checks, right? It's going to be obvious in retrospect. So I would tell you to think about that because it, you know, it's, it's going to take a long time still. I don't know how long it's going to take, but it seems obvious to me when you think about these just really high level, right? So I think those things are going to end up marking the top of what we look at today. And it could even be as simple as like the last stimulus checks that come through in the summer also may be obvious, right? Because the last government intervention and then we'll see what happens from there. So we'll see, we'll see if that's what it is. Yeah, it, it's it's all extremely intriguing and interesting to me. And I don't know if, I don't know if anybody's smart enough to know exactly what's gonna happen, right? Yeah. Uh, there's just so many different things at play. You know, I mean, what about inflation, right? Uh, you know, that, that certainly will play a factor into it. There's going to be so many things that are just going to play a factor into, into what's going to happen. But I do like where you're at uh, by being conservative, by not rushing into investments, by, by just really being purposeful of what you're investing in. Uh, I think that's, that's really important right now. And I, I'm the same way. We're, yeah, do we have to make money? We do, but my company's in a great position where we don't, we don't have to go out and buy properties to survive. And that's a good position to be in. 
Um, we would like to buy properties. We would like to grow, but, yes. but we don't have to. And so that, that's a great position. So being able to pull back a little bit when times are uncertain. Hey, real quick, I just want to let you know about the multifamily challenge that we got going on. It's a five-day multifamily challenge on how to get an offering uh, quickly, right? So we're going to teach you in five days, five one-hour sessions. We're going to go through the steps and the process to get there. So go to mfichallenge.com, mfichallenge.com. You can sign up. It's free. If you want the VIP, there's a bunch of things that we'll give away too. You got you to, you do have to pay for that, but hey, it's going to be well worth it. Again, you can get in for free. We're going to teach you how to get that offer across the table, get the LOI in uh, all the steps. So Ellis Hammond and I, Ellis was episode 316. Check, check out his episode. And we're going to be doing this next week. So sign up now at mfichallenge.com, mfichallenge.com and get in there. We're, uh, we're doing it next week and it's going to be awesome. So hope to see you there. What do you think about inflation? Like, you know, everybody says, well, if there, if we got an inflationary time period, which right now we technically don't, at least drastic inflation, but real assets are the place to be. Having loans are, is a great position. What do you think about that? And, and then, but not being also in the market right now. Yeah. Good question. So I think that when you think about inflation, it's really important to segment into two pieces because I think this has become more and more important yeah. more obvious over time. You got to segment into cost of living of your bread and your water and all that. And then hard assets, yeah. right? Hard assets are getting this huge bump. Stock market's gotten a huge bump and it's happening all from this money printing and everything. But it's not benefiting everybody and everybody we're talking, everybody's talking about, but it's important to recognize as an investor because I think that over time, what's going to happen is that you're, you're going to get a wider and wider gap, unfortunately, because I think that things are going to be tried to get propped up by the government and that money tends to end up flowing into these hard assets, into stocks and, and real estate and everything else. And the, you know, the wages are not exactly like skyrocketing it up and nor can the companies afford to increase them. Right. Um, and so you're getting this bigger and bigger gap. And what's interesting to consider too, and this is a theory of mine at the moment, is that if you think really far out, the, um, the debt to GDP and the whole debt burden is going to become a bigger and bigger problem. And in the, um, and I've, this is a little complicated, so I apologize, but in 2000 to 2010, our, our economy's potential GDP was about 4%. So in a given year, you can reasonably get up to four based on the, the debt burden. There was already some debt, but it wasn't insane. Now you had 2008, a lot of money printed. Now we decreased from 4% to 3%. And no matter how much stimulus uh, previous President Trump had put into the market in 2018, even in a time when we were growing and he was trying to get it to grow even more, he kept going, I'm going to hit 4%. No, he only got the three because there was too much debt. It was too much debt burden. Okay. 2020 to 20 to 2030, I think we're going to be in a position with all this really crazy money printing right now that we're going to be in a half a percent to 2% average annualized GDP range, right? And so meaning that I think the maximum potential is going to be 2%. It could be a little lower, it could be a little higher. Um, the CBO actually is forecasting 2%. I think it might be 1% to 2%, okay? And what's going to happen is that as investors, we can count on the economy likely growing each year into that cycle, okay? But it's going to be slower growth because of the debt burden. Where it gets really scary to me is after that cycle, so the next one. Because then we become Japan, where in a given year or a given quarter or a given whenever, 
time period, you don't know if you're going to be plus or minus 1% GDP because the debt's going to be so much bigger if they continue to handle it. The next downturn, if they print more money, then we're going to end up in a position where the debt burden is so large, you're going to be plus or minus 1%. And you're going to be, as a, as a apartment owner, you're not going to know if you increase rents next year because there could be negative GDP and a recession in a given year, in a random year, as opposed to like in a sick type of cycle, more like structured format that we can all rely on, right? So right now, you and I, probability-wise can rely on a regular cycle in the next upturn where rents are probably going to go up every year, values are probably going to go up every year. But after that, it becomes a whole different ballgame. But what's interesting to consider is that throughout this entire process, as GDP slows, you're going to be able to push rents less and less, right? Because the economy is slowing and not growing as quickly, right? So what's going to probably happen is that interest rates are going to come down to combat that by the government and the asset prices are going to continue to go up further. So I think as, an, as a cash flow investor, what I'm really worried about is now that cash flow is coming down and down and down, and the government's trying to prop the asset prices up more and more, is the better way for me to keep ahead of inflation going forward, focus more on asset price increase versus actual cash flow, which, which is becoming, I'm, can I keep up with inflation with cash flow for myself even, right? I think in the next cycle, that's probably doable, but after that, very questionable. So I'm thinking about this now. This is a 10-year ahead discussion that no one's talking about, that if you look at Japan, this is kind of what's happened that I think is just from an objective perspective is unavoidable if they continue to money print because it's just kind of numbers, right? And this is what happens when you have too much debt. And so sorry for the very long answer, but I think that um, we're going to have a lot of asset inflation that we're all going to benefit from as investors in the next cycle because of this just continued focus on keeping things propped up. And yep. I think that can become even more important after that cycle, as far as keeping ahead on things, it's going to be more about asset price inflation as opposed to cash flow. So we'll see. And by the way, that, that really kills me as a cash flow investor, if that actually happens, because I'd much rather have the predictable cash flow and have that predictability, but I don't know if I could stay ahead of the curve with the cash flow levels. If I get 1% or 2% cash flow, is that going to do me any good or 3% or whatever it's going to be. Right. So Yeah. Yeah, you, you you speak the same as you know as I do as the cash flow for me. I'm a, I'm I'm the same way. I'm a cash flow investor, but I keep thinking more and more about asset prices and and you know what's going on with that. And as you said, like as this as this continues, exactly you you might not be able to be a cash flow investor as much yeah. um, anymore. Yeah. And, yeah, but by the way, we, we, we've seen the beginning of this happen now, okay? Because yeah. I, I don't know, do you, yeah. offer, do you offer preferred returns in your opportunities? Do you offer a class of preferred returns? Yes, okay. yes, I've done that. So, so the, this is something I believe, but maybe you can confirm. The reason why I believe that's happened at the end of this cycle is because cap rates are getting so low that the attractiveness of cash flow is reducing from an investor perspective. So you guys as operators are having to actually offer the preferred return class to yeah. attract more investors, correct? Right? So. That, yeah, yeah, that definitely. Yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. Right. So, so what's interesting is that that to me is like the first sign that cash flow is getting to be so low, and we are at a risk that if the cap rates go down further as interest rates potentially go down into the next cycle and going forward, that that's going to become more and more challenging, and that preferred return asset class, like class of shares, might become more and more attractive, but the the, the rate's going to go down, yeah. right? If cap rates go go down, so. Um, I believe that we're already seeing the beginning proof of what I'm trying to say of like investors not making enough to make it attractive or feel like they're keeping up enough, right? That's, you guys had to offer that class of share. 
Yeah. So it's interesting to see. I mean, look, a lot can happen. A cycle can reset properly. Cap rates can change. Interest rates can go up. Um, I can be completely wrong about everything I just said. Yeah. Truly, like truly. But I'm going with what I think is the highest probability scenario that I just laid out. And if it does, it's going to be a very interesting environment in the next 10, 20 years. Yeah. So. Well, I think no matter what, we can both agree it's going to be a very interesting environment for the next 10 to 20 years. Whether what you said is going to happen or, or something completely different, uh, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> who knows? Yeah. Let's shift gears a, a bit. I mean, super intriguing, interesting conversation. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about you know, you're investing, you've been investing, you've invested in a lot of different deals. You've seen a lot of stuff go on in the market. You've invested in all kinds of asset classes through real estate, through businesses. What What's like, maybe there's something that you've seen over and over again, or something unique that you've seen that, but what's some, what's a mistake, either, either a mistake that you've made a mistake that you've seen companies make and how have you, have you seen, you know, growth from that or, or, lear, or learning from that? Yeah. Um, well, so if I rewind all the way back, I think the most, as a passive investor, okay, from my perspective, in my opinion, what I found over time is that who you're making a bet on is more important than the actual asset itself, right? So the asset's extremely important. What you're investing in, where it's located, all the rest of it, demographics, population growth, the job growth, like, I mean, I can go on and on, but, yeah. me, you know, I, that by far is the number one is who you're making a bet on with the property as a close second. And my concern is that I think that some investors may look at the numbers, get enamored by a location, don't necessarily analyze the operator as well and who they're making a bet on, even just personality-wise is the right personality for them. There's a thousand ways to invest, there's a thousand strategies, none of them are wrong, but you got to make sure that you're aligned really well with this operator, right? Yeah. For many and you're giving them control, by the way. So I feel like a lot of operators don't really dig in to the point where they're reviewing the legal documents carefully to understand the rules that the operator is going to have to abide by or not abide by, right? What are they really getting involved in? What type of personalities the operator have? Are, they, are you on the same page with them on that? When is the op, what is their philosophy about selling if cap rates compress or not selling because they're a long-term thinker? All these things. In fact, even down to the point of like, I think a lot of um, past investors probably don't think to ask for the previous quarterly report as a sample from another uh, opportunity that they sponsor. And then maybe they'll be surprised by the type of report and they get a quarter later and it's not as detailed as they want, right? So understanding who you're dealing with and their philosophy and how they work I think is so critical to deciding if you want to make a bet on them and using a gut feel as to whether you want to make a bet on them and not just taking this, these numbers say, Oh, this looks like a good enough return. This person has a pretty decent reputation. I'm just going to move forward. Right. So I think that that's really, really critical. Um, and background checks, that's probably the number one mistake I think people make that is obvious in that I think if I had to guess based on all the thousands and thousands of past investors I've talked to over the years, I, I would, I'm going to guess, that less than one out of 10 people run background checks. I don't, I don't know for a fact, but I run background checks. It's a strict rule for myself. It's relatively inexpensive. It saved me multiple times. And it's very rare that I hear somebody has run a background check on somebody. So that's like an obvious, what I would call a mistake because it's like, you know, it's, it's, it can be done. It's relatively simple and it can avoid a big problem, you know, risk reward. You could pay a little bit of money to save a lot of money. So uh, but those are some of the things coming to mind immediately. I have, I've never had an investor ask 
to run a background check on. Yeah, it, that that like, and you've been how long? You've been I know you've been doing this for years. How long? Well, I, yeah, I've been well, I've been having investors invest in my deal for thirteen years. I, I mean, thirteen. That I I'm literally speechless because. <laughs> And, and you know what's crazy is that now, to be fair, I started most most of my investors early on were were people that had known me for a long period of time, you know, friends, family, fairly close. That's a fair statement, but no. you know, but here's the thing, and this is actually what I'm talking about getting to know your I actually will I will um, test the operator when I do a background check. What I mean by that is I will say, Todd, um, I need your name, date of birth, and home address. Okay. Test number one, will you give that to me? If not, why not? Right. I don't always need, like your name is actually unique enough. If I knew which state you lived in, I actually don't need any of that. I'll find you. Yeah. Right? yeah. But I ask anyway, test number two is, is there anything I need to know before I run this background check on you? Okay. That is a huge test to me because if you say to me, Jeremy, I have a permit for a weapon in my house. I had it in my trunk. I was transporting it once I got stopped. They found it in my trunk and I have something on my record that I had a weapon, even though I was permitted, it was in my, by the way, I actually had this happen once. That's why I'm mentioning this exact story, right? Not me personally, but an actual operator. They mm-hmm. told me this in advance. They said seven years ago, you're going to find this came up and this is actually what happened. Right. And if, if they didn't tell me that I'd be like, Oh, weapons done. Right. I don't even want to hear about why they have it, but they told me it was a reasonable explanation, but more importantly, they told me because I had someone else run a, uh, who ran a background check recently on an operator in the last year or two. And they asked, they they, they used that, that question. It's like, is there anything I need to know? They said, no, nothing's going to come up. There was a bankruptcy in 2008. Probably the operator thought it was going to be wiped off their record after seven years. But on a background check, it never gets wiped off, gets wiped off your credit. So the, the, the investor said to me, mm-hmm. it's odd they didn't tell me about this. You have to wonder, are they trying to hide it? Or did they just forget that it happened 13 years ago or whatever? And my response was, well, does it really matter? Because, you know, if, are you going to take the risk that they purposely didn't want to tell you, right? You should just move on to next. There's a lot of people out there. So it's a test, right? And so the background checks are more, they're more than just about the background checks. They're about these tests and reading between the lines that all these little things you can do to get to know who you're dealing with paints the proper picture of who you're dealing with. So I'm glad that came up because that's kind of what I'm talking about, about getting to know the operator in a really in-depth and doing these tests and reading between the lines on certain things. So I'm blown away though, that you can tell you with your experience and the amount of deals you've done can tell people that no one ever asked to run a background check on you. That's unbelievable to me. Jesus. Anyway. It, 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 actually it is, um, it is interesting. Yeah. I mean, I would be happy go ahead, you know, run it. you know, and, but, so I got to ask you this question. Did you, did you invest with the person that had the weapons? So ironically, that particular case was the, my co-founder in four investors, by investors, which I probably shouldn't be saying, but it's actually <laughs> a partner. So it wasn't even, so it was even like a different, I still move forward with them. Yeah. yeah. And it, haven't had any issues. I thought it was a very reasonable explanation, you know, yeah. I, but the background checks have saved me. I mean, I remember once I saw a background check from somebody who, was in one state for call it three years, had about 40 investors suing them. Okay. Hmm. Now or 40 people suing them. Okay. I don't even care if they're investors or not. 40 people sued them. They then moved to another state uh, for three years. Another 20 people sued them. Okay. They moved to another state. It seems like I avoided somebody who was going from state to state, probably bilking people of money and then having people 
sue them after the fact, right? I didn't even ask. I, I don't even need to know why they're being sued. I just move. If 40 people are suing you, I move on, right? Yeah. So that saved me probably whatever, 50,000, whatever it was for this, you know, very inexpensive background check. I had a person who um, wanted to do business with me and I, I didn't even get to that far of running a background check and I, and I would have, but um, through researching and digging and digging and digging, I found out that they had, it was actually fairly similar. They, they had uh, been sued several times by investors and different, you know, different things on their record. Yeah, I will say this about background checks is I, I'm willing to give someone the benefit of doubt on one or two, like if there's good explanation for one or sometimes I'll, it's very common, I'll find like a state tax lien, okay, for state taxes, that was X amount of dollars from four years ago. And I mentioned it to them and it's like $2,000. They don't even know it's there. They don't because they moved and they didn't get the notice. This, this happens, right? So I, I have some leniency is depending on what's going on. If you have a state tax lien for $200,000, that's one thing, right? If you have like a, a tax lien for $2,000, or if you had, if you were speeding going 90 in a 60 zone, am I really going to have a problem with that? Right. Um, right. That's very different than getting stopped for other reasons and other things. So I do have some leniency in it because things happen in life, but you've got, everyone's going to have their own line that they're, you know, it's very subjective. So, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, what's, is there any like other, kind of red flags that you see maybe as you're looking at underwriting, looking at, uh, looking at, you know, the, the offering package they put together, anything that you're really kind of like nitpicking about you, that you care a lot about, or maybe that you see a lot of people making, you know, similar mistakes or judgments that you just kind of turns you away. Well, um, look, I tell people I'm looking to invest with someone who's conservative, who's looking to underpromise and overdeliver to build strong, like long-term relationships with their investors, which is what you've done, versus someone who's very aggressive and is, um, you know, using very nice numbers, um, but is a very good marketer. And if I only invest with them once, they'll just move on to the next deal if they're not really performing to projections, right? Like they'll just yeah. move on to another investor. So. If you think about it that way, if someone's not being really conservative of all their projections, it's not going to be a good fit for me. And it's not even a good fit for me personality-wise because I'm conservative. So um, if somebody is using a very aggressive exit cap rate, if they're kind of creating a gap between the revenue and income, uh, the revenue and expense inflation numbers, for example, if they're using a very aggressive mm -hmm. cap up in rents in the first or second year, um, if their expense ratio seems off compared to an average uh, property in that type of geographical location with the climate and everything else taken into account, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff you can look at that kind of will flag pretty quickly. Um, I think one of the most common ones is obviously the exit cap rate um, and then the inflation gap. Those are kind of the easiest ones that people can really manipulate and, you know, not even necessarily crazily aggressively, but, you know, the, the gap of uh, revenue and expense inflation over 10 years compounds. So it does make a very... So there are some basic ones. Um, if you want to get to the next level, then you look at every single line item of the expenses. And if somebody's kind of just phoning at home, they'll maybe apply 2% expense inflation to everything. But what I want to see someone who's really detailed is that, you know, health insurance is going up 8% a year because that's reality. Whereas their snow removal is only going up 3% a year because that's reality, right? Someone who's really detailed. So that's why I'm saying reading between the lines, even in what you're looking for in these assumptions can tell you who you're actually dealing with. You know, as far as are they detailed or not? Are they detailed person or not? Um, 
one other thing I would encourage people to do, and I realize a lot of people who listen to this probably can't do this for every deal, but you will learn a ton by walking a property with someone like Todd and getting their sense on the yeah, property. Sure. Like a ton. Because it's not even about the property, it's about how they analyze the area, the surrounding properties, this other locations, their competitors that they might drive you around the area and give you an area tour. The area tour alone will tell you how detailed somebody is and who you're really dealing with, right? There's yeah. so much you to really learn about somebody. And that's what I was trying to get up before is that I think a lot of investors don't go through these extra steps to really figure out who they're really making a bet on, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't, couldn't agree. And that, and that the area tour, the property tour, that's, that's really good advice. If you have the opportunity to do that, uh, not only do you get to hang out with the operator and get to know them a lot better, but you get to see what they're looking for, what they're looking at, how they're analyzing the deal. Um, you know, how they're looking at the area, all that kind of stuff. So, so really good stuff. All right. We have, uh, we've run out of time. I want to ask you a couple last questions. Uh, great information so far, by the way, this has been, this has been a lot of fun and I could keep on talking to you about this stuff forever. So, <laughs> um, so I got a, just a couple little last questions that I want to ask you. Um, what's a, what's a favorite book that you can recommend to our listeners? Yeah, sure. In fact, it's two books, but they're from the same author. So um, if you're just new to passive cash flow investing or you're or multifamily or you're kind of considering the passive side, my strong suggestion is to read um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki and then Cashflow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki in that order, because a lot of people don't talk about the second one. They're yeah. both kind of mindset books. Um, I didn't read them before I went through all this, but in retrospect, I kind of ended up doing what he's saying or like having a similar mindset. And I think that it could be really eye-opening and potentially life-changing for people if they read those books. But I'd recommend reading those two in that order. I think one of the reasons why those are such favorite books for a lot of people is because they're just, they're so simple. They're just simplified, easy to understand. You don't have to like think that much. It's just, it's laid out so like, cut and dry for everybody. I agree. And I will say there's some overlap between the two books. So just bear with yeah. them when you're reading them together, but there's just such valuable information between the two. Yeah. So, so last question uh, before we wrap up, what are your three pillars of wealth creation? That's a good question. I've never thought about that before. So I don't have a perfect answer for you. Um, I would say long-term mindset, right? Slow and steady wins the race and uh, cash flow focus. Um, so I guess those would be the three that come to mind immediately. Um, if I really had thought about it for longer, maybe I'd come up with a better answer, but those are three really, really critical things to me. Patience is huge. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm not a big risk taker, but over time I've learned that it's amazing what time can do, right? So, um, and everybody who's listening who's new, the only difference between me and you is that I've got 19 years under my belt of this, right? And it's just time, which actually makes you a better investor, more experience, make better decisions, but you get to compound over time. And this is not a get rich quick scheme. It doesn't work like that, right? But if you're willing to put years of, into it and really focus on it, it can be life changing. It can get you out of the corp world. Uh, and I have nothing to sell you on being on here, but it's what I went through. And but you have to have the patience and the really long-term, right? I mean, look at me, we talked about before, I've been sitting on the sidelines, mostly since the end of 2016, with the exception of some unique uh, investment opportunities. And that's a long time and it's agonizing. 
but it's required if you want to be a really good investor that isn't taking too much risk. So you just have to have a lot of patience, but the patience pays off over time and you build your wealth over decades, not over, you know, a course of two or three years. So, yep. Yep. And, and I find it interesting to see some of the, um, newer investors that have come on and all of a sudden they've got something big within a very short period of time. You hope that they've built it right. Um, and that they've done well with it, but you got to make sure that you're building it right. Not just building it for speed. Right. Uh, I think that's, can you hear my kids screaming? <laughs> that's okay. My kids are probably screaming. Oh my gosh. So, I'm like, Hey, I got a podcast. My wife is gone. She's usually home during the day. And, uh, I'm like, Hey, I got a podcast. Make sure you guys don't play in the living room. Of course, where are they playing? Yeah. In the living room. My kids are the same. I understand. <laughs> All right. So I gotta, I gotta figure out where I was. <laughs> you met. Okay. So you mentioned that. I'm sorry. And then like completely blew my train of thought too. Like <laughs> screaming. <laughs> Um, we're talking about the long-term mindset and you were talking about the yeah. investors who could come up. Yeah. I, I just, you know, so many people for, for the, when you look at the successful investors, they've, I, I agree. They've all got the long-term mindset. They're all thinking not like, let's not build this portfolio as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, let's, we're not worried about getting 5,000, 2,000 doors within, you know, a year or two. We're work, we're working on building a, a company that's going to withstand, that's going to grow, that's going to have just slow, steady growth. And so, so really, uh, really important to be patient. I think, I think that's one of the more challenging things for any investor is, is just patience, Right. Be, being able to being able to say no to to potential opportunities that come along the way. Yeah, I think that what's interesting is that uh, you know your cash flow snowball when it gets bigger, it allows you to have more patience, right? Yeah. And so the hardest part is the beginning because you get to a point at which you can say no to everything, and then you still have the snowball going, yeah. right? The trick is how you get the snowball to be big enough. You get to that point without doing it at the wrong way or the wrong time. And one thing I will say as well is that I think a lot of new investors will say to themselves, this is a good time for me to invest. I finally have the money, right? This is the timing. But they don't necessarily look at the market cycle and say, this is the right time. They say, this is the right time for me and my circumstances. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right time to actually implement your plan, right? And that could be tough too. And that's something I think timing is so important in real estate. 2007 and eight is a great you know, example of that, that um, that's very important to consider consider as well, as far as being patient. Did you, uh, so you kind of said you were, you kind of were on the sideline since 2016, not doing a ton of deals. Were you on the sideline? Um, you know, you started in 2002, obviously 2008, we started to see a pretty good correction. Were you yeah. on the sidelines in that time period? I was mostly on the sidelines. I would say I was mostly on the sidelines since about 2006 or seven. Uh, but you know, you have to remember, I, I invest in real estate and non-real estate too. And yeah. so um, I was involved in like some equipment leasing, some other stuff that they just perfectly fine through the downturn. It was all tech related. It was some very quick growing businesses and all this stuff. So, and I'm doing that right now too. If you ask me like, what are you mostly doing right now? It's either very short term hard money lending that I think will work through the summer season in terms of uh, pickup of sales. Um, and 
stuff that is not even exposed to a downturn, whether it's ATM machines or transactions has been going through the pandemic, okay, but I don't have to worry about the underlying asset value going to zero because it's already going to go to zero. That's just the nature of the business. I'm doing some account stable financing, which is not zero low risk, but it's gone through the pandemic. It's very high payback within 12 months and the stuff that I don't have to worry about, you know, the payback, the quick payback can mitigate whether there might be some type of market adjustment next year, uh, but there's no underlying asset value um, or some just really unique stuff where even if there is a downturn, we're protected from rents going down and or protection from asset value going down, which is very difficult to find, right? Very, very difficult, but comes up. So I'm investing in a couple of low-income housing tax credit deals that don't have rent adjustments going out. It's already mandated by the state that the rents aren't going down for the next two years. So I don't have to worry about what may happen in the next two years. So there's unique deals out there. Um, and, but I, it's not what, I, it's not the way I like to invest. What I like to do is go into the random multifamily deal with the wind on my back, with the rents going up at the beginning or mid cycle where we can all benefit and have that stability, but it's not what makes sense to do today. So it makes yeah. it hard. Yeah. You got to invest in the season you're in, man. I could keep on talking we're going to have to get you back on the show and have like, I got, I probably have a list of like 30 questions here for you that I've written wow. down as we've been talking. And we haven't gotten to any of those. So we're going to have to some, we're going to have to get, get you back on the show at some point in time here, but we're going to wrap up. How can our listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn more and, and, and uh, reach out? Sure. Yeah. Anybody's welcome to reach out to me for networking. If there's any way I can help, if you're new, if I could be helpful, I'm happy to help. So the best way to reach me is uh, my email, which is jroll, J-R-O-L-L at rollinvestments.com, which is R-O-L-L investments with an S.com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. Don't hesitate to reach out. If you're another investor group, I'd love to network with you. If you're a sponsor that has deals, I'm happy to look at them. Uh, other, I love networking with other investors to exchange information, trade deals. Like, so I'm just all about, if, you know, you can contact me for any reason. Well, Jeremy, appreciate you joining us. It really got a ton of value, um, you know, talking to obviously market cycles, talking about, you know, being uh, diversified and, uh, talking about the who versus versus the what, um, you know, your th your three pillars, just lots of lots of great stuff. And like I said, I could keep having this conversation for a long time, but we got to let you go, unfortunately. So you have a fantastic rest of the day. Thank you, and thanks again for having me on. Hopefully, it was helpful for your listeners. So. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. Your rating review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to venturedproperties.com, venturedproperties.com and download our free ebook uh, on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like, uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out. And, uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. 
Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.